You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. For centuries, a big, unattractive lump laid in a shallow pool in North Carolina. People passing by just saw an ugly mass and they walked on. One day, a poor man saw the heavy thing and thinking to himself, he thought, you know, that would make a good prop for my door. So he took it home and he placed it in front of his door. Later, a geologist stopped by and he about fell over from a heart attack. He couldn't believe what he saw because sitting there in front of him, propping open this this poor man's door was the biggest piece of gold ever found east of the Rockies. And prior to the expert's visit, the owner's doorstop was just a worthless rock. At least he thought so. You can imagine his delight when he discovered the true value of something that countless others had discarded as worthless. Well, for us, we obviously have something better than the largest hunk of gold found east of the Rockies. We have something far more valuable than the newest innovation or the oldest artifact. We have the privilege of living and fellowshipping in a close, intimate friendship with the King of heaven and earth. Think about that. He calls you friend, and you are His friend. Today, we're going to look at how that relationship, that reality affects our perspective and our relationship with absolutely everything else. We'll focus our time on verses 7 and 8, but for the sake of context, please follow along with me as I read from the beginning of the chapter. Here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I mentioned two weeks ago that These verses contain the inner workings of Paul's personal testimony. 
Whereas Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26 provide us with the events of his conversion. Philippians 3 provides us the internal reality of what happened spiritually in that moment when Paul became a Christian. Prior to his encounter with Christ, he he believed that he was a good man. And by all accounts, he was. He was a good man. And verses 5 and 6 give us his spiritual resume of fleshly confidences. He says, here are the things that I used to rely on. Here are the things that I would hold on to with both hands. And if I were to ever stand before the Lord one day and give an account, a reckoning for myself, if he ever asked me that immortal question, why should I let you in? I had my hands full. I could look him straight in the eye and I could say, here, God, here are the good reasons I have, the reasons why you should let me into glory. I could say, look, I I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, unlike so many of those who were born into unfaithful households or, or were proselytized and became Jews later on in life, no, the sign of the covenant was placed on me at the very beginning. I go all the way back. My privileges start with birth. Besides that, I'm also of the people of Israel. You know, God's chosen people, your people, the ones who have the adoption and the glory and the covenants and and the giving of the law of worship and the promises. There's no question, I'm a Jew. In fact, Lord, I'm not just any Jew. I'm your super Jew. I am the best of the Jews. I mean, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, second only to the tribe of Judah. You might say that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews because I have faithfully kept my traditions, my language, and my culture. And while others blended in, I stood out. And as far as the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the cream of the crop. I was fully committed. I was both feet in. I was that guy who signed a card, threw a pine cone in the fire at church camp, and committed my life for life and followed through. Everyone knows that I am a man of God. As to zeal, I relentlessly persecuted the church because of those heretical Christians, you know, the ones that were the real threat. And as for my righteousness, just ask around. Find out what my reputation is. I was blameless. You'll discover that my reputation is flawless. If anyone deserves heaven, it's me. I'm the real deal. Just tell me where I need to go to claim my reward. I'm ready. Prior to his conversion, Paul was confident that he was good to go. That he had done everything right. He had dotted all of his I's, crossed all of his T's, and he was ready to be accepted by God. After all, he was God's man. And his good far outweighed his bad. But at the moment that Christ saved him, On that road to Damascus, his entire perspective changed. Everything changed, his direction, his priorities, but most of all, his thinking. He no longer saw his ritual, race, rank, rearing, religiosity, resolve, and righteousness as spiritual life insurance. Prior to that moment, he had. He had plenty to put his confidence in, but no longer. Instead, all of those things were now liabilities. They were deadly distractions from the true righteousness that can only be found in Christ through faith. Verses 7 and 8 then tell us what a transformed life looks like, not on the outside, but on the inside. 
Paul doesn't want us to miss this, so he says it three times here in two verses. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that the Jews would often state something three times when they really wanted to emphasize their point. Having just recited his pedigree, we shouldn't be surprised to see him drive this point home by saying the same thing three times in three different ways. Now, if we aren't careful, we'll quickly read over these three sentences and we'll miss out on the wealth of information that each one individually brings to the table. So let's start out by stating the obvious and recognizing the similarities between all three. First of all, you'll notice as you look at these statements here that all three statements are very personal. They're very personal. He says, I and my a lot. It's I, my. He doesn't say you and yours or we and ours. No, this is very personal. He says, this is my experience. This is what I did. This is what I do. And this is why I do it. Also notice the accounting language that appears in all three of these statements, particularly the words count, loss, and gain. These words appear in all three. That word count, it literally means to believe or to think or to consider. And it was often used when one would carefully weigh the facts or take into account all of the factors and the facets of a given situation and and then make a judgment call. They would weigh out all of the evidence. And Paul says, I've done that. I've sat down. I've thought about this. I've considered it. I have looked at all of the evidence. I've examined everything before me. And Christ has radically changed the way that I look at my spiritual assets. So much so that those things that I once considered as gains, they are all, in fact, losses. Every single one of them. He uses the figure of a balance sheet here to illustrate this shift. Much like our account books and ledgers of today, back then they had T-charts. And, and, and they would use these charts to help track their profits and losses. And that is the picture that Paul paints here very vividly. On one side of the T, you have your losses column. And on the other side, your profits or your gains. And here he makes it perfectly clear that everything that he had once listed on the left side of the sheet, all of those things that, that he had put under gains, they have now been completely wiped out and moved over into deficits. He counts every gain that he has as a total loss and completely worthless. That much is obvious and consistent all throughout these three statements. All three are extremely personal and full of accounting language. And then finally, look at the focus of each sentence. They all end with a shining spotlight on Christ. He says it's all for the sake of Christ the worth of Christ, and the gain of Christ. In other words, it's all about Christ. My Greek professor in school would always say that repetition is the key to learning. And the key to learning is, you guessed it, repetition. We heard that over and over and over again. It didn't help me when it came to memorizing my Greek verbs and declensions, but whatever. Repetition is the key to learning. And the key to learning is repetition. And Paul certainly makes good use of that axiom here in these verses. 
But rather than just say the same thing the same way, it's the subtle differences between each statement that really fill the lines in with color. Because while the similarities are striking, it's the differences that reveal the heart of Paul's conversion story. And if you have been born again, if you are a child of God, then your internal testimony is no different than Paul's. It is exactly the same. Sure, the external circumstances, as they appear in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, they might have next to nothing to do with your story. I doubt any of us here were thrown from our cars and and blinded for three days after hearing a voice from heaven. I don't know anyone who has had that experience. I'm sure that if we went around the room, we would hear a variety of stories about how God intervened and gave us new life in his name. But while our outer circumstances, our our testimonies on the outside differ, that inner change that we experience, that, that, that accompanies new birth, that doesn't change. That is universal. That is the same. That is something that we all experience. If you have been truly born again, birthed from above by God himself, then you have experienced the same radical change of heart and mind described here in verses 7 and 8. That's how important these verses are. So it's important for us to slow down and look at each statement and carefully consider or take into an account the transformations that accompany a life-changing encounter with the living Christ. So let's do that. First of all, it becomes clear as we approach verse 7 that for the believer, Christ changes your perspective. Your perspective. Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That little word, but, marks a pivotal shift in Paul's thinking. Last week, Pastor Bill taught about the number of times that that phrase, but God, appears in the Bible. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, thank God for the buts of the Bible. And we should thank God for the buts of the Bible. Because in this case here, the but, it signifies a significant shift in perspective. And I hope that you have buts in your life today, that, that you were going in one direction and then you hit that wall of a butt and you turned around and you started going in the other way. I hope that's true for you because that's exactly what Paul is describing here. As Paul went from confidence in the flesh to complete confidence in Christ. Let's not forget what happened on that day when Paul literally saw the light and was profoundly changed. You remember that while he was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't searching for answers. He wasn't interested in Jesus. He wasn't looking to know Jesus. Quite the opposite. He was on his way to kill and imprison Christians. At the beginning of Acts 9, we see that it says that, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Saul is not a fan of the Christians. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, the Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
As a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee, Paul truly believed that by doing this, he was doing the Lord's work. He was severely confused. He was severely wrong, but he believed that this was the right thing to do. This was his religious zeal. It wasn't until he heard a voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, that he realized he was looking at everything wrong. All of a sudden, his gains became losses, and Christ became everything to him. And that's what happens to those who are dead in their sins when Christ intervenes to save them. You flip over to Matthew 16. Let's look at this text. Matthew 16. This is such an important text. It's one that I don't feel like we bring up enough, or to my discredit, I don't bring it up enough, because this is a statement that Jesus makes multiple times. In fact, it appears in all four Gospels. And this isn't a, a casual comment of Christ, but this is a core teaching that he would continually go back to time and time and time again. Look at Matthew 16, and look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's this exchange, this same exchange that we see here in this text that Paul has in mind when he writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, you can't hold on to your achievements, your accomplishments, and your assets if you hope to find salvation in Christ. You have to let it go. You have to. You have to consider whatever gain you had as a loss for his sake. Otherwise, you won't have him at all. A good illustration of this truth is found in Acts 27, which is interestingly enough the only other place in the entire New Testament where this word loss appears. There we see Paul as a prisoner on a cargo ship sailing towards Rome. The conditions are rough, to say the least, and their only hope for survival is to throw their precious cargo overboard. Because in that moment, nothing is worth more than staying alive. Even good things like food and manufactured goods become liabilities when the ship is sinking. Paul says, I gladly threw the entire cargo of my spiritual confidences into the sea, all for the sake of Christ. I hope that your testimony contains that same declaration. That whatever gains you might have had, whatever assets you might have relied on, you gladly rejected all of it for the sake of Christ because that is number one. If you have truly been born again, Christ changes your perspective. Number two, Christ changes your passion. Your passion. Look at the next sentence. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word indeed is probably not the best translation. But in all fairness, none of the English translations 
do a very good job here with this, with this section. Because the Greek text is very emphatic. And Paul stacks words on top of each other to start out this sentence. He literally says, but seriously, on the contrary, also. Or as one translator puts it, but indeed, therefore, at least, even. You can see how Paul is getting carried away as he builds off of this first statement. And immediately he brings the past into the present. And it's so important that we catch that by saying, I count everything. I count everything as loss. In verse 7, he used the past tense. He said, I counted on that day that Jesus saved me. I counted whatever gain I had as loss. But today, in the present tense, I am still counting. You see, Paul never moves on or changes his perspective as the years pile up. He's still poor in spirit. He still considers Christ to be the only gain worth living. He also broadens his losses from from old spiritual assets to now include absolutely everything. I mean, nothing is excluded. He realizes that the previous list that he has provided here in verses 5 and 6, as comprehensive as it may seem, it is not comprehensive. It is not full. He's forgetting things. He knows that there are other temptations, other things out there that we could possibly rely on or put our faith and trust into. And he wants to destroy all of it. So he counts everything. Even those benefits he's forgetting to mention, they are all worthless. In fact, they're, worth, they're, they're worse than worthless. Worthless would be a zeroing out of things, neither good nor bad. But he says that everything here is a loss. It's negative, below the line. It's less than nothing. That's why he can honestly say, there isn't anything that I wouldn't gladly give up for more of Christ. Why? Because of the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth, that's another financial expression for the supreme asset, the ultimate gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, last time that we were here in this text in Philippians, we saw that that word know, that it is a heavy relational term. To know someone is to have a very close, personal, intimate relationship with them. Paul says, knowing Christ in the deepest, in in, in the most profound sense of the word, to know Christ, that is the ultimate prize. That is the greatest gain. While there are many places that we could turn to in order to help illustrate Paul's passion here in this text, I believe Jesus does it the best. So go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is such an important chapter in our Bibles because it marks a pivotal turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. Up until now, his preaching had been primarily directed towards the Jews. And his message was clear. He He said, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unfortunately, in chapter 12, the Jewish leaders rejected their Messiah. And that very day, that same day, Jesus decides to shock everyone with an entirely different approach in Matthew 13. 
he starts speaking to them in parables for the first time in his ministry. Even the disciples were confused by this new development. Look at what they say here in verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, the purpose of the parables is to both reveal and conceal secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there are many great things that we can glean from the parables, but they were not written to help us manage our finances or help us prepare for retirement, or any of the other things that we sometimes read whenever it comes to the parables. The parables are here to reveal and conceal secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says so. And if you mark up your Bible, verse 12 is an excellent verse to underline. It's excellent, because it's a promise that if you love biblical truth, God will give you more and more and more and more. But it's also a threat. Because it's possible for a cold heart to lose even the little that it once had. So for the rest of the chapter, Jesus then proceeds to drop parable after parable after parable, full of these secrets of the kingdom. So with that in mind, look at verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So you have this man who cuts across the field one day. Maybe he's on his way home from work and he's taking a a shortcut, whatever. He's in a hurry and he stumbles across this treasure. So he makes a mental note, he covers it up and he runs home to tell the wife, honey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Here's the bad news. We've got to sell everything. I know that you love that china cabinet or you love that whatever that we purchased for you last year. We got to get rid of it. We got to sell it all. The house, the furniture, all of it. But before you have a heart attack, let me give you the good news. I found a treasure and it's worth more than everything that we've got times 10. We're going to be set for life. All we have to do is sell it all and buy the right field. That is exactly what the kingdom of heaven, the realm of salvation, is like. The Christian can honestly say, there isn't anything that I wouldn't gladly give up for the singular prize of Christ, Christ himself. In staccato fashion, Jesus drives the same point home with another parable. Look at verse 45. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This time Jesus paints the picture of the ultimate bargain hunt. You've got this merchant, this businessman who is at the market and he's looking for a good deal. And he stumbles across one. He stumbles across the deal of a century. 
a pearl that is worth way more than its price tag. Perhaps the sailor is too drunk to know what he has or, or the seller has no idea what such a pearl is actually worth. Either way, the merchant knows a good deal when he sees one. So he runs home and he tells his wife, he says, honey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Jesus says that is exactly what salvation is like. That's what coming to me is like. If you have Christ, then what else could possibly compete for your affections? What else could possibly come close to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Let me ask you this. What matters most to you? Think about that. What matters most? Is it your job, your family, your comfort, your security, your freedom, your success, your reputation, your life? Or is it knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and having Christ, his righteousness, as your own? What are you truly passionate about? What makes you tick? Because to the Christian, everything else, even the good things that tempt us with security, all of those things are worth giving up if we ever had to for the sake of having Jesus. But before we move on to the last sentence, notice the titles that Paul uses here to put Christ's worth on display. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is Christ, the Messiah. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is Lord, the Sovereign. As tempting as it is for us to take advantage of the time change this morning and take an extra hour to unpack each and every one of those titles, it's sufficient to say that when you have Christ, you have everything. You have it all. And don't skip over the fact that Paul says, my Lord. He says, my Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, the honey of the sentence lies in that word, my. This is the only time that Paul says, my Lord, in the entire New Testament. Every other time, he makes it inclusive. He says, our Lord. But not here. Here he makes it personal. As he continues to evaluate what really matters in life, his Lord is is his passion. That's number two. If you have been truly born again, Christ changes your perspective and your passion. And then finally, Christ changes your pursuits. Your pursuits. Finishing out verse eight, he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul can't help himself. He just keeps building on to the previous thought with more and more and more intensity. His losses become less consequential and more comprehensive as time goes on. He goes from whatever I had to everything to all things. And he counts them all as scubalon, meaning waste, excrement, manure. There is nothing subdued or subtle about verse 8. Paul is not pleased with Jesus. No, Christ is his passion, his pursuit. 
He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Just take a moment and think about that. Consider this man as he's writing this. There he is under house arrest in Rome, a prisoner awaiting trial. A short chain, about 18 inches long, connects him with the Praetorian guard who is with him 24-7. He has nothing. No possessions, no privacy, nothing. His old friends are gone. His family has disowned him. His fellow pastors in Rome are jealous and against him. He has no family, no friends, no followers. Whereas he was once somebody in the Jewish community, he is now public enemy number one. By all accounts, many today would consider this man a failure. Even when it comes to his ministry, by ministry standards, they would say, Paul, he was really something at one time, but look at him now. And yet, what does he say here? He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He's not exaggerating. He's not using hyperbolic language. He's not inflating the facts. He's just telling us like it is. And he means it. He's saying, I have suffered the loss of all things. I don't have anything left. And yet, I live with no regrets. He has no regrets. In fact, he would prefer the pain of losing everything so long as he gains Christ. You see, when the Savior truly saves you, he changes you. And often the best way to test the genuineness of salvation is testing. When the water is smooth and calm, anyone can say, of course, of course, all I have is Christ. All I care about is Christ, but when the storms of life threaten to take away those lesser loves of your life, that's when you discover the truth, and it becomes clear what you truly value. So this morning, as we have looked at these three statements and these three sentences, I've got three questions for you to consider or take into account. First of all, what's your perspective What's your perspective? How do you view your relationship with the Lord? What do you think you bring to the table? Do you bring anything to the table? Or, or do you come with an open hand full of nothing but the sin that makes salvation necessary? It's hard to believe, but a long time ago, I graduated with an associate's degree in webmastering. To my surprise, after graduation, no one came knocking on my door to offer me a job. Somehow, potential employers had missed the memo that Hans Kaufman had received a magical piece of paper, and I was ready to earn my place in the world. So, I went to work in a factory. And honestly, I loved that job. It was great. I worked at a heat treat brazing and annealing shop for a little over a year. And my primary responsibility was running these big vacuum furnaces. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I would cook these airplane static structures and I had scars all up and down my arms from, from throwing these pieces of metal that would retain 500 degrees of heat into, into smoldering boxes and then throw them onto the truck as soon as the cycle ended. It was a blast. But then I met a girl, not Julia, who I thought about settling down with. And sure enough, as much as I loved that job, I was only making about 6.20 an hour. And I could barely fund my Taco Bell habit, let alone build a life with somebody else. So I went back to school. This time, 
I took it seriously. Finishing my four-year degree in two years while working three web-related jobs and building a portfolio so that future employers would see what I'm capable of, this time, when I graduated, I applied to about 70 jobs, all within the first month. Received four interviews and found myself working at a Fortune 30 company. It felt like a long road, but I finally had my foot in the door with a good job and benefits that, quite frankly, just don't exist today. In a way, I was finally over the hump, whereas before employers would look at me with skepticism, now I was a proven asset. Whereas before I would look at job boards and groan when I would see those words at least five years of experience, all I had to do now was crack a joke with the right person, show them what I was capable of, and I was in. It was awesome. All that to say, the pressure was off, and I went from begging to negotiating because people wanted me to work for them. I had the experience, the background, the education, the recommendations, and the skill to make it happen. From there, I transitioned into a five-and-a-half-year contract with Central Medicare Services, met Julia, applied for seminary at the end of all my commitments, and then ultimately I somehow found my way here several years later. That's a whole other story. Here's the point. Most of us, most of us have to figure things out as we go. And while our paths differ, life is full of valuable lessons that we must learn if we are going to make it. We need to learn that experience, background, education, recommendations, and skill don't just happen. You've got to know what you want, discover what needs to be done, and then put the work in to get it. That's exactly what Paul did when he was a Pharisee. Before he was saved, he pursued favor with God more passionately than most of us pursue our careers. In his mind, he was over the hump. He had it all. He had the experience, the background, the education, the recommendations, and the skill. His future, his eternity even, was a lot less scary because he had all of that to fall back on. If he ever doubted his salvation or questioned his standing with the Lord, he could easily look back over a spiritual resume and remind himself that he was very well qualified. But all that changed. That all changed the, the day that he was saved. He tore up his resume and he rejected his qualifications. And yet in the next verse, he tells us that even now, in the present tense, some 20 odd years later, he is still fighting that battle. He's still trashing his achievements. He's still counting everything he could ever rely on as a loss. Not a wash, but a deficit. So I have to ask, is that your perspective when it comes to your spiritual life? Or are you still holding on to something of self? And that leads into my next question. What are you passionate about? What's your perspective and what are you passionate about? Is knowing Christ worth more to you than anything else? A Russian countess came to know Jesus and was very open about sharing her testimony with those in the court. The czar was displeased and decided to throw her into prison. After 24 hours with the lowest level of Russian society and the most miserable conditions imaginable, he then ordered for her to be brought back into his presence. He smiled sardonically and said, Well, 
Are you ready now to renounce your silly faith and come back to the pleasures of the court? To his surprise, the countess smiled serenely back at him and said, I have known more real joy and more real happiness in one day in prison with Jesus than I have known in a lifetime in the courts of the czar. Friend, can you say the same? Come what may. And finally, I would ask you, what are you willing to lose in order to gain Christ? Is he your greatest pursuit? Not salvation, not achievement, not status, not reputation, not any of these other things. Is Christ himself, the person of Christ, is he your greatest pursuit? This week, I stumbled across a series of questions that all begin with the phrase, isn't it strange? I don't know who came up with this, but whoever they are, I believe they were really onto something. Listen to this. Isn't it strange how a $20 bill seems like such a large amount when you donate it to the church, but such a small amount when you go shopping? Isn't it strange how two hours seem so long when you're at church and so short when you're at a ball game? Isn't it strange that you can't find a word to say when you're praying, but you have no trouble thinking what to talk about with a friend? Isn't it strange how difficult and boring you think it is to read one chapter of the Bible, but how easy it is to read 100 pages of a popular novel? Isn't it strange how everyone wants front row tickets to concerts or games, but they do whatever is possible to sit on the last row at church? Isn't it strange how we need to know about an event for church at least two weeks in advance before the day? So we can include it in our agenda, but we can adjust it for other events at the last minute. Isn't it strange how difficult it is to learn spiritual things, to share with others, but how easy it is to learn, understand, and expend and and repeat gossip? Isn't it strange? Listen, friends, throughout these verses, Paul counts everything as a loss in pursuit of that one prize, Christ. And that changes everything, his perspective, his passion, and his pursuit. Because Christ is truly everything to him. And if he is everything to you, then Christ will change that for you as well. He will change your perspective, your passion, and your pursuit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of heaven, Lord, as we begin to turn our attention and our hearts towards coming together in communion and participating in the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would examine ourselves. Lord, we should examine ourselves regularly to see if we are in the faith, as your word says. But Lord, I pray that we would examine our thoughts and our motives, our hearts, our internal attitudes. Lord, I pray that we would be honest, that we would self-evaluate, see these things for what they really are. And if there is anything lacking, if we have anything in the gain column apart from Christ, then Lord, would you work in our hearts? Lord, would you give us everything that we need everything that you have already provided for us in Christ, Lord, would you activate that in our lives? Would you help us? 
to take the necessary steps of moving anything from the gain column over to the losses. Lord, that we would count these things, that we would consider them, weigh the evidence, and that we would reject them, that we would rely solely on the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and nothing else for our salvation. And not just our salvation, Lord. Lord, that we would continue now, today, present tense, to consider all of these things a loss for the sake of gaining Christ, of knowing him. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would be active in our fight against sin, in our fight against pride, in our fight against fleshly confidences and self-reliance. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. We love you. I pray that we would see more of you, more of your son. I pray that we would be in awe of his glory, of his righteousness, that he would be that prize, that gain that overshadows everything else so that we throw these things over the side of the ship gladly, not clinging to anything but the precious cross of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for your grace, for your mercy, for all of your gifts. In your precious and holy name, amen.